Welcome to another edition of the Long Gospel Devotional. My name is Eric Sorensen, pastor at Hillside Church, as well as a contributor to 1517 in a whole host of ways. Each and every week I gather with you on usually Tuesday morning to look at God's two words from all of the scriptures. This week we're going to be looking at the upcoming Sunday's epistle text from our series of lectionary texts. And that epistle text comes from well, the always controversial epistle of James, and it is going to include some uh, verses that have been historically, uh, I think, difficult to understand for the church. There's, they really have always been uh, sources of some controversy, and yet I think, at least I hope, as we look at the passage before us today, we will get a sense of what James means and why there really is harmony uh, between what James says and what Paul says, because indeed that is the source of so much of the controversy so much of the time. So, so let's go ahead and pick that up. Let's go ahead and dive into our slides right now. So first of all, uh, we're going to get a lot of focus today on the law. There's no doubt about that, and that's appropriate because this is the Long Gospel Devotional. And really what this passage is all about from James chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 and verses 14 through 18. I didn't break them up by the way folks. That is the way it is in the lectionary text. But it really is about how law and gospel function in uh, love for our neighbor. How do law and gospel function as we go out in loving service to our neighbor? Now, first of all, James wants to point out, well, basically what it doesn't look like. He says very clearly, uh, don't play favorites. My brothers, verse 1, show no partiality. Literally, the, words, the word for partiality is a conjunction of two words in Greek that could mean to accept or judge according to face. So it's in other words, it's uh, making judgments or showing favoritism based on face value. That's another way you could put it. He says, don't do that as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, already you can see why it's a bad idea. He's going to explain that. But right here in this verse, you can see the reasons why. Because it's in conflict with who our Lord is. All one needs to do is look at the life of Jesus throughout his entire ministry and we see that he doesn't, in fact, cozy up with the rich and the powerful, but instead goes out to the outcast and the loser and the poor and the downtrodden and everyone else that society seemed to think uh, the world had passed by. That's who Jesus goes after. And therefore, we shouldn't try to go after those that we think can get us in power or help us out in ways that, frankly, Jesus didn't do. As he continues... This is why he says playing favorites is not good, although it's very easy to do. Verse 2, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, in other words, a seat of honor, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, a place of dishonor. Well, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I mean, the answer is obvious to James' rhetorical question. And it's probably the case that James is writing about events that are actually taking place in the midst of the people he's writing to. 
he's probably heard from somewhere or maybe seen uh, in his midst that there is favoritism going on. And as much as when we see it happen, we recognize it for the grossness that it is, the reality is it has taken place and continues to take place throughout all of the church's history. It takes place everywhere in our world. Why does it take place? Well, it could be something as simple as we just happen to like the person more. I mean, if they're a friend of the family or if they're a friend of ours, it's natural for us to want to do favors for them. Also, though, it can be more crass than that. It, it could come down to, like, this person can make me more comfortable or enhance my reputation, make me more reputable. If I'm seen hanging out with this person or giving this person a seat of honor, well, then he might, you know, do me a favor, too. He might scratch my back, too. On the other hand, it might simply be out of fear that one would show favoritism to somebody because they could have the power to hurt us. We know that there was actually wars in Galilee over this very issue, over the rich being favored as opposed to the poor, and unfortunately it hasn't stopped in our day and time. Now I could give many other reasons for why such favoritism could take place, but nevertheless you get the point. And the whole point of James is to say, folks, this is the way of the world. Sure enough, that's true. You scratch my back, I scratch your back. It's all about favors. It's all about who you know. Okay, true. But it's not the way of the church, or at least it ought not be the way of the church, James says. Verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Now, I do need to make this disclaimer. This is not talking about all rich people of all time. If it was, well, then we'd have a problem because Scripture would contradict itself. We know in the early church, as Paul mentions to Timothy at the end of his epistles to Timothy, that in fact there are rich people that are part of the Christian church. There are rich people still today, thankfully, that are part of the Christian church. It is not all rich people at all times that are inherently bad. Being rich is not bad. Let me make that clear. But it is true that at the time, the rich did tend to be the ones that oppressed the poor, and the rich did tend to be the ones that used the courts to their advantage to fleece the poor. That is indeed what the wars in Galilee around the first century were fought over. The class system was incredible in its division back then. And so this is really what James is addressing. The idea is that these rich people that had been such enemies of the poor in the past, now that they've walked into your church, suddenly you're going to forget all that and you're going to leave the poor by the side. You're going to leave the unimpressive person by the side in order to get in good graces with those who could either harm you or do favors for you. James says, no, that's not the way this works. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Are you forgetting what they've done and who they are to you? Don't start treating them as if they're more valuable than the most wretched saint in your midst. Jesus died for all equally and his blood is applied equally. Don't start treating people as if that's not true. Your Lord is the one who goes after the poor and the downtrodden and the outcast. And so as his body, we ought to do the same. 
Well, that's pretty clear. That's what the law demands. The law demands that we treat people equally. No matter what their socioeconomic status is, no matter what their background is, the law absolutely insists that we love our neighbor equally. Okay? So, how you doing? How do you measure up to that standard? That's a good question to ask ourselves. Am I loving my neighbor, no matter what their background or no matter what they can bring to me or threaten me with? Well, James says, makes it very clear, here's how you know. If you fulfill, then you're doing well. Here's how he says it in verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. Okay, fair enough. Very simple equation. If you love your neighbor as yourself perfectly, you're doing fine. But, verse 9 says, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. The word for transgressor, I mean, it's a, it literally means to sort of walk over a line. You have broken the law. You are a lawbreaker if you have sinned in this way, if you have shown partiality in any way, in any way. Well, if I think about it, I know that I indeed can be categorized as a lawbreaker Maybe not in this dichotomy, maybe not because of rich and poor, but I can think of any number of ways in which I could show partiality in my life. I could show favoritism, whether it be to my own family or to my own friends. I mean, we all are prone to doing it. It's, it's in our hearts. It's there. So what does James say the verdict is? This is how the law works, folks. It doesn't matter if you've been perfect in everywhere else. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. What is the law actually telling us we ought to do? Love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the way Jesus sums it all up. That's what we are to do. If we've fallen in just one point, then it's as if we have fallen in all the points. What we want to do is we want to try and categorize big sins and little sins. And when we see our own sin, we almost always want to call it little so that we can then continue to justify ourselves. Or we rename our sins to be something more socially acceptable. No, no, it wasn't partiality. It was just strategic. No, I wasn't being partial to the wealthy person who walked into my congregation. No, no, no. No, I was just being strategic because I know that this person can fund all my great ministry plans for the future if we get in his good graces. You see how it's done. And yet the law doesn't allow us any rationalizations. The law doesn't allow us to minimize our sin. No, the fact is, again, I read James 2.10, if you have kept the whole law but fail in one point, you have been guilty of all of it. That's how we naturally are doing. So then, we need to talk about good works such as not showing partiality, such as treating everybody equal, 
and the reason for them, and frankly, where they come from, what their source is. James has done a good job of showing us, well, frankly, <laughs> the, the reason why it's such a problem if we do show partiality or favoritism. Now he's going to do a little bit of showing us why it's so important. First of all, he says in verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that save him? Now let me bring, let me answer this very succinctly because James is eventually going to say no, but we have to understand that contextually. It is a fact that a person could be theoretically saved by faith alone in the sufficiency of Christ alone without any ability to do things on behalf of their neighbor. I mean, it's possible that someone who is a quadriplegic who really can't move or do anything on behalf of their neighbor, or somebody who has faith in Jesus Christ but is dirt poor, can't do anything on behalf of their neighbor, and yet they are still indeed saved. Now, what James is presupposing here is he's talking to people that have means, that have the ability to help a neighbor, and yet don't do it and still say, ah, it's fine, I've got faith. That's who his audience is. And this is the example he gives. He says, verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, boy, I got to tell you, I love the way the English translators decide to put it. In Greek, the word is literally nude. It's not just poorly clothed. In Greek, it's actually nude. If a brother or sister is so destitute that they are literally nude and lacking in daily food, in other words, they are starving and naked, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? We understand what James is saying here. This is common sense, right? I mean, this isn't even something that's profoundly theological. If somebody comes to you naked and starving and you have the means to help clothe them and feed them, James says, you ought to do as your Lord did. That's, that's the right thing to do. Clothe and feed the one who needs your help. If we don't do that, well, it's a little bit like the meme that we've seen going around in any number of places. I don't know if you can read it, but the top caption says, I have no clothes and I'm starving. And the Christian approaches and eventually gives the high five to the man and, and says, Go in peace, be warm and filled without doing anything, resulting in our neighbor drowning. This is why James says our works really matter. Yes, if we can do something for, out of love for our neighbor to help our neighbor, then we ought to do something out of love and help for our neighbor. It's really that simple. And yet, what we've talked about so far is entirely law, right? I mean, everything I've said is what you ought to do. So we need to talk about where the source of love and help of neighbor comes from. And there's a very key word that James uses here. He says, so also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Set aside the question that James will get into later 
about the distinction of faith and works or about how they go together. And let's just deal with where good works come from. Because I think that's what James is really getting at. And if you go back to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, you're going to see that good works, works like clothing and feeding our neighbor, always, always flow from faith. Never apart from faith in the Christian life. Thus he says in chapter 2, verse 8 of Ephesians, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Yes, it's true that those who have been gifted faith have been also gifted good works to do throughout their life that God has prepared beforehand for them. That is true. James is indeed saying the same thing. It's just another way of saying it. Now you ask, well, faith in whom? And this is really important because this is what truly saves us. Faith that was given by the one who suffered and died for all your sins. Faith in the one who is risen from the grave and intercedes on your behalf. Faith in the one that is both author and finisher of your faith. Who do you have faith in but the one who is all-sufficient, who has provided all propitiation for your sins, who has forgiven you of every wrongdoing you've done? That's who you have faith in. That's who you're saved by. And from that salvation, from that free forgiveness, thereby works are prepared for you to walk in in advance. Now, I think still what comes to mind when you go through a passage like this, for at least the sensitive conscious, is how do I know if I have enough works? There's always that, that word, enough. And truth be told, if you were saved by your obedience or your ability to produce works, well, then the answer would be you'd never have enough. Remember, the standard is always love God, love neighbor perfectly. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If, if this was teaching that you were saved by your works or you began with faith, but then you end up being saved by the amount of works you have, then let me be clear, we're all damned, condemned, going to hell. No way around it. And so it's important to recognize when we ask this question just to acknowledge up front if we have enough works that no, we won't. But thanks be to God, Jesus Christ does. And all that he's accomplished for you, he imputes to you. You never stop being saved by that imputed righteousness. And from that knowledge, from faith in that work of God, flows good works to your neighbor. But here's the thing. I'm convinced of this. Most of the works that he will do through you, that he's prepared beforehand for you, will probably happen in a way that you don't notice. I'm just convinced of this, folks. You will do good works. It's a guarantee. It's a promise. You can't not. You will. Yes, you will be simultaneously saint and sinner, and yes, you will struggle with sin, but nevertheless, God in his faithfulness to you will do good works through you, but you won't be cognizant of it most of the time. I go back all the time to the parable of the sheep and the goats. What happens there? The sheep 
upon being granted entrance into the kingdom of God for all these works that they've done, have no clue about any of them. They say to God at the judgment, when did we do all that? They're not even aware. And yet God is the one aware because God is the one who's prepared them beforehand for you to walk in them. And he who is the author and finisher of your faith will bring them to fruition on behalf of your neighbor. So fret not. Know that this faith you have will produce works by the Holy Spirit, by the power of God, so that you don't fall into the problem of committing partiality or favoritism towards those around you, but indeed become more and more like Jesus as you look to serve and love your neighbors no matter what they can or can't do for you. Well, that is your long gospel devotional for today. I hope you've been blessed by it. I hope you have a great rest of the week, and I'll look forward to seeing you next Tuesday. God bless.